My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, this is Martha. Before we begin this special episode on mental health, which we hope you will really enjoy, just wanted to flag up that this was recorded in November 2019, so there are no references in it to coronavirus and all of the subsequent events that have come about from that. But we believe this is a evergreen topic and that money and mental health is, if anything, more important right now than it's ever been. So we really hope you enjoy it. Our interviewee was a really fantastic guest and we think it's a very special episode. Thank you. Welcome to Squanderlust, the podcast about the emotional side of money, why our actions aren't always as good as our intentions, and what we can do about it. I'm Martha Lawton. And I'm Alex Lemon. And we're your hosts. Today on Squanderlust, we have a very exciting guest. Emily Reynolds is an award-winning journalist, an activist, and the author of A Beginner's Guide to Losing Your Mind. She's with us today for an extra special episode on money and mental health. Hi. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you here, Emily. Nice to be here. Yeah. Um, so... We, I think, wanted to start off just talking a bit about like the relationship in general between money and mental health. Yeah. Why those things are connected. Yeah. So they are very much connected, which I think we probably sort of understand intuitively. Yeah. Um, you know, all sorts of different conditions interact with your kind of finances in a different way. So um, just for one example, I've got bipolar and um, when people have manic episodes, this includes me often they will end up spending a lot of money, whether that's um, kind of engaging in risky behaviours like gambling or um, going on sort of spending sprees. Um, and then I guess things like anxiety um, can affect just sort of your relationship with your banks or essential services. You know, you don't, you don't want to make phone calls, for example. You don't want to open your bills or look at your mail. Um, so there's all sorts of different things that can make um, your financial life a bit more difficult when you have mental health problems. Um, I think there's a, there's a really good stat for the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, who I will probably mention about 150 times today, <laughs> just to warn you. Um, but uh, they recently did some research and found that um, it was 86% of people said their financial situation made their mental health worse. Um and it's kind of a vicious cycle. So, um, you know, being in debt or having kind of difficult 
difficulties with money can make your mental health worse and having bad mental health can affect your finances. So people often end up in a kind of, yeah, a vicious cycle where these two things are interacting with each other in really difficult ways. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly my experience of times when I'm very low, I tend to comfort spend Mm. um, to try and make myself feel better. And then I feel worse because I don't have very much money and that means that I'm then struggling for things that are potentially more essential. Yep. Um, And I feel really embarrassed. Yeah, it's really easy to get into the like, oh, I've failed at that. Like you're kind of very self-judgy sort of mindset as well, which will just keep you down or bring you further down. Yeah, and I think also it can be really, really difficult when you're in that really low state of mind and you have quite low self-worth and you're feeling those feelings of guilt and shame to actually like look at your finances mm. to open your online banking account to look at your bills to even like have the emotional energy to look at it let alone deal with it in any way I think that can be really 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 difficult and I used to be so bad when I was really depressed um at looking at my bank balance um it, it would just seem like an impossible task basically um which obviously makes it much more difficult to well if you don't know what's going on you can't manage it in any way so um makes it so much more difficult. Yeah, definitely. I think um, one of the things as well for me is that that my um, self-efficacy, my ability to, my my belief in my ability to fix things is one of the things that goes when I'm very low. Mm. So again, I just don't feel like, even even if I looked at a problem, my sense that I can do something about it kind of dies when I'm, when I'm really down. And thankfully, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I very rarely get so down nowadays. The things that I've done to look after myself um, and the therapy I've had have been mostly very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just me and that's just where I am right now. And that's not to say that in future I couldn't get back to a position of mm. being low again. Um, and so, yeah, it, it can be just, just really difficult just really hard to kind of pick up and I think I mean going back to what you were saying about the money and mental health policy institute because I've looked at some of their work as well and one of the things that they said that really stood out to me is that it's not always the conditions that you expect that cause the problems Mm. and and some conditions can cause real challenges for people that you would never even consider from the outside like um, one of the groups that ends up with really high problem debt is people with obsessive compulsive disorders. Mm. Um, and that can be because some kinds of OCD are in themselves expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> like right. the actual compulsion yeah. is expensive. Or um, people miss appointments or um, uh, find it hard to hold down a job because of something to do with the compulsive behaviour. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like if you've got to check everything multiple times before leaving the house... Mm. It can make you really late for appointments and things, and that can have big knock-on effects, particularly things like job centre appointments if you're on yeah. universal credit. That's one of the things I was going to mention about yeah, a kind on. of how these indi- like, these things that you sometimes feel are completely individual to you mm-hmm. and, 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 and can actually be framed as individual problems. Um, and there are there is a lot of good advice that you can take around your individual personal finances, and obviously mm. I think it's great when people feel empowered to, you know... Um, 
get a handle on those things and try and change their own behaviours to, to make their or their lives in general, not just their financial lives, better. But I think those structural things are, is what's really, really key. So both from kind of the banks and essential services, um, there's lots that they need to change. But then there's kind of wider things like, yeah, the benefit system. If you miss a phone call or you don't turn up to an appointment and you don't get your benefits and then people end up further and further and further in a cycle of debt. Um, and there's nothing that, you know, you can individually do really to change that. You know, you can, there's all sorts of great advice you can have sort of keeping a money diary and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff but you can do the, do that all you like but if you can't the, the structures are preventing you from accessing the services you need then you're not actually going to have see any improvement whatsoever mm. um so i think yeah talking about those things is really really important when you talk about money and mental health mm. yeah for sure because it's the two angles of it there's you know the expenditure and there's the income and i think sometimes it's I mean, maybe for us, we think about it more because we're freelance and we're patching it together all the time. <laughs> yeah. It can be very easy to think, oh, well, I've got this stable income because I've got a salary job. But actually, that's not the case for a lot of people. And, and you know, those those threads can be quite thin sometimes, especially, you know, current economies and all that. The, yeah. You know, the income side of it as well. is is It's not just, oh, I can control my spending and therefore it'll be fine. There is, you know, a kind of out with your control elements, you know. Yeah, so there was the Trussell Trust report about um, use of food banks and I think um, one of the stats that came out of it was 50% of people, or over 50% of people using food banks mm. have mental health problems. Mm. So I think mm. it's really clear that, yeah, like you say, um, there's a lot of this stuff that's completely out of people's control mm. and that isn't to do with, you know, you see all this advice on Twitter, like, oh, well, I bought a house simply by stopping buying coffee every day and no. you know, stuff yeah. like that, you know, that... Uh, oh, that's how I managed to save a hundred thousand pounds. Like yeah. I didn't buy coffee, and also my parents are very rich. But yeah. you know, like <laughs> that stuff just doesn't apply whatsoever. I mean, it doesn't apply anyway. But it's even less relevant when it comes to things like this because, yeah, like yeah. you say, people don't have any income yeah. um, at all. And with things like people being declared fit to work when they're mm. not, and you know, I mean, it doesn't even have to be at the extreme because you have so many instances now, particularly um, you know, younger age groups where they're basically working free to try you know the whole internship thing yeah, yeah. and you know it's not it's not necessarily even just an extreme thing that you might see this as as although it's becoming less of you know so so much more common it would be less extreme I suppose but um but there are you know I think it can be it can sometimes be easy to see it as like a, an issue for other people but yeah, actually yeah. it can very quickly or very easily become something that does affect you and pulls you into that mm -hmm. cycle that then becomes really problematic. Yeah, which is why, again, I think that um, that banks and essential services should be introducing these kind of standards because, mm -hmm. um, like you say, these things affect people across the board. And, um, yeah, whilst obviously things like funding for welfare and you know austerity and cuts and stuff mm -hmm. is affecting lots of people, there are, again, like you say, people in the middle. Mm -hmm. I think that's where banks and essential services kind of have to step in and um, bring in these kind of standards, which, yeah, the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, again, have, have just been working on with um, a group of, of banks and services. And I think that stuff's really, really important. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think as well people need to, um, people who are well, need to not take that for granted mm. as well. I think there's a sort of it couldn't happen to me mentality around mm. a lot of things. Mm. And I know... Um, as somebody who used to work in um, life insurance, critical illness cover, income protection type insurances, um, a lot of people don't want to buy some of those kinds of insurances because they think 
they could never be in that position where they would need something like that. And some of that's just kind of basic optimism bias where nobody really believes anything bad will happen to them. It's yeah. bad things happen to other people. Um, and some of it is a kind of stigma thing. Like yeah. that's what happens to those people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's an idea of what a mentally ill person is. Yes. yes. And people think, well, it's not me because I'm normal. Yeah. Like, well, that's you've, you've misunderstood what mm. mental health problems yeah. are, what mental illness is, or mm. mental distress, however you want to term it. That mm. that's not it isn't something that happens to other people. No. You know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I think stigma has decreased quite a lot, but um, often I think that that has only really been the case for things like depression anxiety um, which is obviously really really great and I think that's good but even bipolar um, there's still so much stigma around that and then that's not even going into things like schizophrenia or personality disorders you know like I still get people saying to me like oh I'm really surprised that you've got mental health problems I'm like why like, what, did you, what did you expect? Like, what did you expect me to be? Like, what did you mm. expect me to be saying or doing or behaving? Mm. Um, and all of these ideas that people have are just like just gross stereotypes that mm. are not applicable whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to have necessarily a particular condition to experience the symptoms of you know mental health problems. Like, say, you know, you go through a um, like a bad breakup or someone in your family dies, you can end up in that. You know, yeah. you can end up in quite troubled places that yeah. that may not. You know that could just be at that point in your life and hopefully you'll recover relatively quickly and it won't repeat itself but that you can still experience that and then end up in a sticky situation that you were not expecting you know, yeah I think that's, that's why why sorry. the other ring, it, that's why the other ring of you know the condition or making it into a thing like mm. a you know this sort of stereotyping or this image of is you know it can come into your life in unexpected ways yeah I think that's why I actually am now more likely to use the word mental distress and mental mm. illness because like you say there are all sorts of um things that can happen to you in your life that are really difficult that maybe affect you for a small amount of time or a short amount of time mm. and often pathologizing them and mm. um trying to put yourself in a box or mm. be labeled is not actually the, the the best way to go about it and just mm. kind of seeing the trauma or distress or whatever it is mm. um on its own and, and without yeah. trying to label it, I think can be really, really useful. I think actually that would be probably one of the most useful destigmatizing things we could do, which mm. is I don't think actually really talked about too much. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, describing this stuff as mental distress, I think is actually quite useful um, yeah. because, yeah, as you say, traumatic or distressing things happen to all of us throughout yeah. our lives. Yeah. I So one of the things I do is I teach uh, debt advisors about mental health um, and sort of good practice for being a, a supportive debt advice yep. uh, worker for people who have um, mental distress or mental health issues, however you want to put it. And one of the sort of pieces of language that you hear in what is a very inclusive, very well-meaning environment in sort of debt advice settings, you hear people saying things like, oh, she's got mental health or he's mm, got mental health, yeah. as if... A person only has a mental health status when something has gone wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah, As if mental health isn't something that we all have. Mm. And it, yeah, it, like, like a spectrum, yeah. Yeah. And like, it, if you take out that word mental, he's, he's got health. 
I mean, like, we yeah. don't say that, yeah. so why would you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, that's the metaphor I use. I'm like, we all have different levels of physical health, yeah. and our physical health is in whatever condition it's in. And we all have different levels of mental health, and you can have the mental health equivalent of a mild cold. Yeah, mm. exactly, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and you could have the mental health condition uh, equivalent of something really serious that puts you in the ICU. Yeah. Mm. Um, and when you start seeing it like that, and you can see light bulbs mm. going off above people's heads when you start talking about it that way. Mm. Um, yeah, you happily go into work and say, oh, I feel a bit run down, or, you know, yeah. I've had a really bad cold, or... I've got the flu or something and you people I think sort of now intuitively just see the yeah see their physical health on a on going up and down constantly mm. day by day sometimes um but yeah you're completely right we don't we don't think about mental health like that at all. You have a book out. I know Martha's reading it. I haven't read it. So tell us about your book because it covers a lot of your own experiences. So what the book is about and then it would be really interesting to hear a little bit more about your own particular experiences um with um, problematic mental health and um, your finances and how, not just like how that manifests and what that looks like, but how you've managed to kind of help yourself with it. Yeah. So the book came out two years ago now, nearly three years ago, which seems Ooh. like a long time ago, yeah. but also seems like <laughs> yesterday. Um, yeah, so basically it's a kind of practical guide to navigating mental health problems. Um, I wrote it with young people in mind, um, but actually seems to be quite applicable across the board which I'm really really pleased about um and yeah I really intended it to be quite practical um because when I was writing it I think the landscape is completely different now and there are lots of really really brilliant um books and um sort of articles and podcasts all sorts about mental health um but at the time so when I first got diagnosed um I found it quite difficult to find something that was um practical without being clinical mm, um, right. that or so, someone's personal story I think a while ago there was a real trend for sort of misery memoir right yeah and there was also a trend for books where someone would detail all of these things that had happened to them and then at the end perhaps the publisher had been like well you've got to wrap it up and make it seem like everything's fine now and mm. so I remember reading a few books but I was like this is so great I really relate to what this person is saying and then the end it would sort of be like and then I met my husband and now I'm fine yeah or something like that it was just <laughs> yeah. it, it's just I think a lot of these I don't actually really blame the authors because mm. some of them were so nuanced and clever and insightful and then the end was so sort of tacked on I was like someone is definitely their editor has de mm. definitely been like can you make it a tiny bit more positive at the end please mm. and they've had to tack it on um so yeah I wanted something that was kind of really honest but without being yeah that kind of misery porn type thing or without being uh, obviously I want it to be optimistic and I want people to have hope I'm not being mm. a pessimist here but I do think that it's important especially with young people to be really honest and mm. I don't think there's actually that much value in saying if you do these things and you'll be well forever because it's just not realistic and it's not helpful. Um, and I think getting people to understand that it's something that you can live with, mm. it's not something that you... I mean, for some people, they'll have a period or a few periods of mental health problems and then um, actually not have anything else for the rest of their life. But for a lot, if not most of people, most people, it will... Um, it will keep coming back. It will keep recurring. I think learning how to deal with that is much more important than hoping that it's just going to go away or that one specific thing is going to cure it. So that was kind yeah. of my goal for the book, really, was to be honest. Mm. Um, and also I wanted it to be a bit funny as well because yeah. a lot of this stuff is quite absurd. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the conversations you have with GPs or psychiatrists are quite absurd and ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of humour 
um, to be found in in these kind of things. Um, so that that was another kind of hope I had for the book was that um, it wouldn't just be yeah miserable. <laughs> it would be sort of funny as well. Yeah, which it is. The reason I haven't finished yet, and I, I usually kind of power through books, is that I've been pausing to think. Okay. After you've after things that I've been reading, and I mean there are some bits that are. Obviously, it's not misery porn, but there are some bits that are quite hardcore reads. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, um, the self-care chapter in particular I read yeah, and I yeah. went, oh, yeah, A, you're kind of making me feel better because I never went that far down yeah. that road. But also I have now seen where that road leads to. Yeah. And I I have a lot of empathy mm-hmm. with, um, with, with traveling to that place that you can get to when your self-care does completely fail. Um, and that was, you know, that was quite a challenging read for me. I, you can see Alex sitting there looking a little bit uncomfortable and jiggling, and I felt quite uncomfortable reading that. But also, the book is a really good balance of realistic and hopeful. And I think you've you've really achieved what you set out to achieve with that. Oh, glad, um, glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. At the same time as, you know, being very honest and frank about you know, where you can get to when your mental health does kind of collapse on you yeah uh, interestingly that's actually probably the chapter that I've got the most feedback on um mm, from people surprised. saying um well yeah for anyone listening who's not read it which is probably most people who are listening but um <laughs> so yeah the chapter basically talks about um when I was probably my most depressed ever um and just sort of wasn't washing wasn't um really eating properly was just like my room was absolutely truly disgusting like how clean is your house levels of like really really filthy um and yeah wasn't opening the curtains wasn't um you know it was just really wasn't changing the sheets just everything was really really disgusting and like a lot a lot wasn't washing my clothes or anything so I probably smelled really awful anytime I went to work and but like I was so depressed that I just I probably knew this but I didn't I didn't care mm. I just didn't have the emotional energy to care at all what people were thinking or you know how I was looking after myself I had like no self-worth at all um yeah. and I've actually had so many people um contact me with store and like friends as well who I didn't know had had any kind of um, difficulties at all contacting me to say it got that bad for me too I was sleeping in a bed full of dirty plates and dirty clothes and all of this stuff um, yeah. and I think that is actually still quite taboo so I think there is obviously still quite a lot of shame yeah. mixed up with that so yeah that's actually been one of the chapters that people have mentioned yeah. the most yeah and I reached out to you originally because of an article you wrote about self-care um, and we've talked about managing money being a part of self-care yeah. in We've the past on, done an on the show. episode on it. Yeah. wants to go back and listen. <laughs> it's always my job to big up our previous work. Yeah, it's probably um, <laughs> our most popular episode, I think, and, and or certainly one of them. Um, and that was, you mentioned it in the article as well, and I think that was one of the reasons why I thought, oh, yeah, we have to, we have to get Emily on the show. So, um, obviously, you just talked about how bad things have got with your with your sort of household self-care. Yeah. But um, where what happened to your finances during that time? Well, that time wasn't actually too bad because okay. I honestly genuinely do not know how, but I managed to hold down a job mm-hmm. throughout that whole period, which I look back on and think mm. how I did that is truly a miracle, <laughs> um, which is why one of the reasons why when people say getting people back into work is the mm. only goal of mental health care mm. you think well that's not true because I was at work and I was the, the most depressed I've ever been mm. um, 
It's probably everything was going into that. Yeah, absolutely. All my energy was just going to work. Like, I can't Mm. say I was doing a very good job, but I was going to work. So Mm. actually, financially, it wasn't too bad then. Um, But there have been other times when I've... So actually, when I first went freelance, it was quite difficult because um, obviously anyone who is freelance or runs their own business will know your tax bill is the looming spectre Mm -hmm. at all times, looming over your life. And I just had no capacity to think about it to plan for it, to save for it. Mm. Um, At that time, also, when I first moved to London, I didn't actually have any money, really. I didn't have enough money to save. All the money I was um, earning would go to pay off my overdraft, and then I would be going back down Mm. (laughs) throughout Mm. the month so I couldn't save. Um, And there have also been periods when, again, like I mentioned earlier, um, I didn't want to look at my bank statement. I didn't want to open my bills. I didn't want to think about it at all. It was just it was just too much. I I could not have done it. It was just too, too stressful. And I didn't want to check how much money I had. I didn't want to check how much I owed to, you know, EE or Orange or whoever. I didn't want to look at any of that stuff. And so I just ignored it. And then obviously, the more you ignore something, as anyone with anxiety will know, the more you ignore something or put something off, the worse it gets. Mm. Um, and the more anxious you get about it, the more insurmountable the task. And I think that's been a massive problem. Um, when I was at university as well, before I was diagnosed with bipolar, um, I had what I now know was a manic episode and spent right. just all my money right. all the way down into my overdraft. Um, just spent all of it on absolutely nothing. I, right. ca- I cannot tell you now what I spent it on. Just absolute garbage. Um and but again, I, I couldn't have had any help with that because I didn't know I had bipolar. I didn't know what was going on, and had no um, conception of, I had no conception that it was a problematic behaviour either. Right. I think that's also very difficult for mm. students because, um, or young people because there's a sort of like joke or yes. myth around students all wasting all their money and going into their overdrafts and yes. students have no money and all of this stuff. So I didn't actually identify a lot of that behaviour yeah. as problematic. I just Afterwards, just thought, well, it was just an irresponsible thing for a person to do, but it's just normal. Yeah. Um, when actually it, it wasn't. And it was like an early warning sign um, that, yeah, something else might be going on. So, yeah, I've had quite yeah, a difficult relationship with it over the years. And um, mm. it has taken quite a lot to get out of that. And I think that's broadly been linked to me getting sort of more stable generally. Yeah. But, yeah, there have also been things I've done that have... Um, put in a psychological safety net as well as as a kind of literal safety net you yeah. know just yeah they've made me feel better about this stuff um mm-hmm. just what, what just, are some of those things that you steps you've taken specifically i don't know if there was a kind of tipping point that you got to where things you know obviously with treating you know treating yourself generally having your health treated better you know things you become more able to make things work but um what practical things have you done and and has there been a sort of shift in a more fundamental way that's created a sort of almost like a platform for you to keep moving forward? Well, yeah, there have been a few things I've done that have been really helpful. So I check my bank balance every single day, which might be excessive, actually, but <laughs> just oh, like... I don't think so. I, I'm, mm, I'm for that. I'm, definitely. A, I'm the regs. Yeah, yeah. I, I check it a lot now and just sort of now know um, what's going in and what's coming out. Um and my partner very kindly created this very amazing spreadsheet, which with oh. all sorts of formulas and stuff in, which I would not have been able to do myself, <laughs> um, 
for all of my in- incoming, so all of my income, um, when I've invoiced, when it, exactly the day that it g- g- it's late, right. it goes red. Uh. Um, because, yeah, when, when uh, maybe about a year ago, I was just tr- tr- thinking about my tax um, and actually went through all of um, my invoices and actually a huge amount had not been paid. Right. But because I wasn't really sort of on top of any anything, um, I hadn't noticed I hadn't been checking my bank balance either, so I sort of vaguely knew what was owed sort of when, and I kind of knew how much money I had-ish. Right. But I didn't actually know. Yeah. And so there was actually cumulatively like a thousand, two thousand pounds worth of invoices mm. that hadn't been paid. And this was just, a lot of it was just like 80 pounds here, right. 40 pounds here, 100 pounds here. And all of this stuff had just, I hadn't been on top of it. So I just missed it. I just missed all of this stuff. Mm. Um, so now that's not, that doesn't happen because my spreadsheet flashes red when someone is 45 seconds late paying me. Excellent. <laughs> um, so that's really, really helped. Um, and yeah, having a better idea of what's going on. Um, I don't yet have my spreadsheet, which I know I should set up. Many of my friends have every <laughs> single outgoing and every single, well, I have everything that's coming in, but not everything that's coming out. But right. I know I need to, I know I need to get on that because a lot of friends have found that really, really, really helpful. Mm. Um I don't. What else have I done? I, I guess actually, what's probably been the most helpful thing is now I earn more money, mm. which yeah. again is linked to what we're saying about this not just being an individual thing. Yeah. The reason that I'm more able to keep on top of my finances and um, is because I earn a bit more money now, and I'm not so stressed about paying rent every month. And those things are a huge psychological burden. Can I pay my rent? Can I all like? Can I, you know, buy food? Can I afford to pay my bills? Those mm. things are such a massive weight on yeah. you mm. that. Of course, you're not going to have enough space to think about these additional things that are going to help you, you know, build up your safety net, like I said. Mm, yeah. um, so actually, that's probably the, the, the most useful thing is being, mm. you know, and that's, again, that is linked to me um, getting better because mm. I now have much more capacity to work mm, than I yeah. did even like a year and a half ago. Mm, yeah. um, my capacity to to do anything yeah. has massively increased. Mm. Um so I think, yeah, again, it sort of backs up my um, theory that this is actually a structural mm. issue um, and that there's only so much that these individual changes can do. But, of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that can help. Um, actually, I've just thought of another thing um, is that, obviously, when I'm manic, spending a lot of money is mm-hmm. an issue. So now um, I have a sort of agreement with my partner and previously had this with friends and family before um, I met him that, you know, to take the credit card away mm. <laughs> if I'm on the up um obviously that's not going to work for everyone because obviously there are many many ways in that in which that can be abused but um if you do have people you can trust Mm. um i think that's a good idea which i think a lot of banks also kind of getting in on this idea so i know that um you know monzo have got lots of different um blocks now that people can put in so they don't spend lots of money and um hsbc have said that they are going to put a daily um cap on money spent gambling yeah. So yeah. I think that is quite a, a kind of good um, sort of block. And it's good that banks are kind of putting that in in mm. a structural way rather than me just saying, like, handing it to my mum, like, please take it away. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it's um, it's a really interesting um, area of work at the moment. Mm. Um, so one of the things that I one of the teams that I work with is the um, consumer vulnerability team at the Money Advice Trust. 
Um, and uh, there are sort of two key researchers who, um, or experts that we work with there, Chris Fitch and Colin Trend, who I worked with quite a bit, who um, in particular are advising um, a lot of financial services providers, but also some of the utilities and phone companies and people like that about how to get better about that, yeah. how to improve their policies, how to train the staff better and so on around that. There's a lot of um, stuff that would just be good customer service. Yeah. If they implemented it, it's like, well, this is obviously an accessibility issue, but also it would just make the experience of banking with you or yeah. using your services just better, full mm. stop. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Um, it's interestingly, actually, that's the way that the Money Advice Trust now talks about vulnerability. They say, actually, vulnerability training is really just really great customer service. Mm. It's just about what does the individual person in front of you or on the other end of the phone line, or using your website really need? Yeah. And how can you give exceptional customer service to that person? And so when you start seeing it as just within a continuum of customer service, then that is, um, it becomes much easier to kind of conceptualise how do you handle this right, Yep. I think. Um, there was something I wanted to kind of pick up a little bit that I think might be a useful piece of information for people who have anybody who's listening who has um had difficulties with their mental health or experienced mental distress yeah however you want to talk about it um which is that there's an organization called the money advice liaison group um and they are a a sort of joint working group between creditors and the money advice sector the debt advice sector um to try and come across and work out um like a, a set of principles and ways of working together that actually work mm. on both sides that work from the commercial perspective and work from a consumer perspective and a sort of realistic. And there is, um, there are some good practice awareness guidelines around mental health and debt that they have. And there's also something else that um, the MALG, Money Advice Liaison Group, have done, which is they've got a leaflet called Final Demand, which is a pocket pocket guide for health and social care professionals on working with people experiencing debt and mental health problems. So I think those things are also kind of good to know about. If you've got a professional that you work with around this, around your mental health, like, like there's a guide that they could be getting mm. to supporting you with the debt side because they might not be, they're often not experts in the debt side. They might be in your condition. So I think that's, I, I don't know, I hope that's sort of useful information for somebody. Mm. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. 
And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Because one of the issues, you know, with this is um, even knowing what's available. Mm. I mean, knowing that there is even a thing and then finding where the thing is. They're yeah. two very, you know, important but different parts of the process. So, you know... Have you sort of through your experiences sort of burrowed down into some of this, had to dig it out? You know, how easy was it for you to find any help, advice, structure around this? You know, things that you could put into place, um, tools that you could use mm. with finance organisations? Well, I basically sort of managed to claw my way out of it myself. I think that was actually proving the point that I didn't know yeah. there was anything mm. out there that I didn't know... I didn't have any advice whatsoever. I didn't know there were any resources out there. Mm. And I think that, yeah, advice around money should be more deeply embedded in mental health services as well. And it's sort of a, not even just advice or tools, a knowledge or an understanding of how these things can impact your mental health. Um, and actually, I, I've never really been asked by mental health professionals whether it's an issue for me, mm. um, which I think is probably indicative that... These resources aren't, and I hadn't actually heard of some of them. And I, I basically, mm. uh, my whole job is writing, thinking, <laughs> doing <laughs> yeah. activism around mm. mental health, and I hadn't heard of them. Mm. And I think that's probably not a great sign. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not brilliant resources. I mean, the, the oh, signposting yeah. yeah. towards them yeah. is obviously not good enough. Like, if I've not heard of them, mm. then, you know, someone who doesn't spend like 99% of their life thinking about mental health policy <laughs> is probably not going to have heard of them either. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, the fact that I've actually never used those services is not because I haven't needed them. It's mm. because I've not mm. known that they're there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, at first, I, I guess that if I, I really needed something, I would probably first contact someone like Mind, mm. um, yeah. who I know would probably be very good at signposting, but yeah. it's not a specific service and they're obviously overwhelmed with yeah. um, mm. requests and, mm. you know, requests for help. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think there needs to be better signposting to these tools um, yeah. so people can actually get some help. Because, you know, the, although the conversation is much wider about um, mental health problems these days and people talk more openly and, you know, there's increasing awareness and that's great. It's There's a lot of sharing of my experience, which is useful from a not feeling alone point mm. of view. But um, there isn't so much like, here are the things I did to like help solve my problems, down you know, down to a nitty gritty level like this, where you would then, you know, that information would get passed on. Because, you know, organisations um, can can provide all the resources and make all the tools and, and offer all the advice, but unless people know it's there, they yeah. can't use it. And if people yeah. don't sort of discuss the things that they've done to help themselves um, and the things they've come across, that it just can't spread. It's very hard to get that kind of thing to mm. spread. And I, I used to work in um, 
policy for, for internet companies. And there's so, so many parallels between finance industry and the internet industry of, um, you know, where is the line of regulation? Mm. Um how do you get people to understand what their rights are in a particular situation and then what they can do about those rights? Um, is, there's a lot of parallels with that. And it's, you know, that lack of information um, isn't, you know, it, it's it's like whose fault is that? You know, it's it's a slightly strong word to use, but I think it... it the, it can be quite tempting to want to blame it on the banks because, mm. you know, they're not exactly popular. Um, and they or saintly. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't always done the right thing, shall we say. Um, but, yeah, it's like, where where does that responsibility fall? And you were talking about, you know, when you've seen mental health professionals and they haven't actually said, is money a problem for mm. you? Um, that's obviously, that should be an important question too, but who, you know, how do you make that responsibility kind of flow out and where do you see, where do you see gaps now and what would you like to see changing around that? Yeah, I mean, I think mental health professionals need more training around this, definitely. Um, I think there needs to be more joined up services mm -hmm. when it comes to welfare as well. Um, and I mean, I personally think the whole welfare system should be overhauled at this point and I think austerity has basically rendered it kind of cruel and unyielding for anyone with mental health problems particularly but um everyone full stop so i think those things definitely need to change um yeah i think i think also when we talk about these issues only in an individual way i think people end up feel can end up feeling quite shamed and yes. you know um you know i can sit here and say i did this that and the other and then but that, that doesn't mean that someone else who isn't able to do those things is feckless or irresponsible or, you know, deserves their money problems or is, you know, it's their own fault. Mm -hmm. And I think often the way that this conversation is framed is basically well, you can. It's almost the same as, you know, mm -hmm. the boomers saying, oh, well, I don't buy coffee and I've got a million pound house. You know, it's not the fault of people who are in money problems that they can't get out of them. Mm -hmm. And I think framing it exclusively in an individualistic way can often imply that those who aren't able to do those things mm. kind of brought it on themselves or are, you know, those yeah. feckless, mm. irresponsible words that you hear, mm. the more right-wing tabloids bandy around. Um, so I think framing it in that way mm. is good. I think a lot of banks are doing really good stuff now. Um, so as I said, HSBC putting in blocks for gambling, like daily restrictions and um, banks making um, themselves much more accessible um, mm. I think they're really, really good steps and those things kind of have to continue. Um, I think one thing in particular that would be quite useful for services to look at is the loyalty penalty. If I don't know if yeah. you've heard of this, but um, where basically if you change services more often, you're more likely to save money. And if you're too ill to mm. think of, you know, if you're suicidal, you're not going to be like, mm, I think I need to change my internet. Mm. Yeah. You're not yeah. going to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And then you end up paying much, much more. Mm. Um, so things like that, I think... Um, services have to look more carefully at and kind of carry on what they're doing when it comes to accessibility. I know that you've written about this and like the kind of marketing co-opting of self-care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I saw there was one um, Twitter post that you'd called it neoliberal wellness culture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which yeah. was quite a good way of capturing it. But it's that this is like where it there's a crossover between these sort of things that we're discussing here of um, being driven down certain paths and financial trouble and, you know, having, um, you know, feeling mental distress. And you're like, well, self-care is a solution to mental distress, but now it's, the, you know, a marketing tool. Yeah, so, um... a lot of these companies don't actually care 
about your mental health. I think we have seen this, uh, we saw this with feminism a few years ago and we're seeing it with mental health now, mm. is that companies are seeing, hmm, people seem to care about this issue, so let's capitalise on it. And mm. I think, yeah, we saw this with feminism not yeah. that long ago. Um, mm. And I think we're seeing it with mental health now. I don't actually think that large corporations care about people's mental health <laughs> and they just want you to buy their product. Yeah. Yeah. And if they can frame it in a kind of woke way mm. that makes you more likely or makes their target audience more likely to engage with them, then they will do that. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it is very, 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 very cynical. Yes. Um, and I don't really think that buying anything is going to make you feel better, mm. fundamentally. I mean, I'm not saying like, you know, don't buy anything ever and just be really, really just scrimp completely, yeah. obviously. But they, yeah. you're sort of presented with these objects that you can purchase as a kind of ticket to feeling better. Yeah. And that's not necessarily mm. what's going to ha- help. I mean, yeah. doing things like opening your curtains, the simplest thing in the entire world, will make you feel much, much better than buying something. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you, you talk quite a lot about leave your house. Yeah. Breathe fresh air, go yeah. somewhere green. Or even just open your window. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't think, you know, buying something very expensive is going to is gonna help mm. fundamentally. When it's presented as some kind of like radical act of self care, mm. it's just not it's just that's just it's just disingenuous. Yes. People should be a bit suspicious of anything mm. any company or article mm. or whoever trying to sell you something in the name of self-care because I don't think it's necessary. Because there's sort of two prongs to this. Because we've talked about self-care a lot and we talk about it between us and and the way it's kind of been co-opted a bit. Um, And uh, we were talking about it the other day and it came up as like self-soothing being a part of self-care. And uh, there was an article you saw that that basically created a differentiation which we didn't necessarily agree with we saw mm. self-soothing as a subset of self-care it's like something yeah. that exists within and the sphere but it's something that um is a good thing to do to get you to a point where you can then do the practical mm. like self-care mm. um but it's we were like self-soothing is only one part of self-care but it's the part that's easy to sell yes so that's exactly. where everything gets flogged at you um and then <laughs> and then i was saying like they can't sell anything by telling you to pay your water bill um where whereas actually that is um Although it's not glamorous and cool, it's a very useful self-care thing. Yeah. Because you, you actually wrote, there's a Vice article that you wrote um, about, it was, I think, what constantly worrying about your money does to your mental health. Mm. Um, and in it you say, when saving is a luxury, taking control of your finances can feel daunting, but it's a vital act of self-preservation that will bring, pre- bring peace in the long run. So kind of, and we've talked about self, you know, f- sorting out your finances as an important part of self-care. And like, what are your views on that and how do you go about that and how has it helped you yeah no I think that they're the fundamentals of self like how I think of self-care now I mean that's I, I think yeah that it's correct that like self-soothing is nice and sometimes necessary and sometimes you need to just be like I'm going to stop doing any work now and get in the bath or lie down or whatever it is you need to do to make yourself feel a nice eat a nice meal whatever mm. it is those things are obviously really important and they're important just generally to lead like a joyful life mm. they're not necessarily self-care they're just like <laughs> That they're, they're fundamental things that make you feel good. Yep. Whether you're, you know, feel really unwell or you feel perfectly happy and healthy and stable. But yeah, those those things like the very very non glamorous things, mm-hmm. like even not even paying a bill, opening your bill, like checking yes. your bank account, not even you know, just thinking about tackling mm-hmm. these things. Um, mm-hmm. 
in steps as well, I think it's yes. quite useful. You know, so like when I realised that I was had been underpaid by 150,000 media companies, um, like <laughs> I, I wasn't going to sort it out all at once because that, that, that's overwhelming for yeah. any, that's overwhelming for anybody. And, you know, I know plenty of freelancers who are, um, have no experience of mental distress whatsoever and they find their tax bill or chasing invoices and stuff very stressful. So I think, like, number one, people should not be too hard on themselves mm. when yep. they're doing this stuff and do it in steps. Yep. But, yeah, anything non-glamorous is probably clearing out your fridge, <laughs> not glamorous. Mm -hmm. You can't, you could, I mean, you could maybe try and sell that with, like, some kind of fridge organizer product. <laughs> but, like, it's quite hard to sell. It's not very glamorous, like cleaning mm. out the vegetable drawer. Mm. But those things are what, you know, are the, are the actual fundamental building blocks of um, someone feeling more stable yeah. generally is yeah. is having a level of security yeah. um and i think those things are far more important actually um and we should be like centering them in discussions on self-care mm. um yeah yeah mm. agreed i mean it's that other line that i really love which is about um self-care is being your own good parent mm. yes. and you know a, your own good parent doesn't just let you eat ice cream under a duvet watching Netflix all day. No, they let <laughs> you do it for a bit, but after a while they're like, okay, it's 10am, please. Get yeah. out of bed now, you have to. Yeah, yeah. Your own good parent makes sure that you are living in a clean home. Your mm -hmm. own good parent, when you are being your own good parent, you are making sure that, yes, you are leaving the house and getting a little bit of physical activity and um, socialising and learning things and, you know, getting your homework done. Yeah. <laughs> like... Yes, when you are not well, again, your your own internal good parent will um, be kindly about that and mm. let you do it slowly and in stages and not push you to the point where you're distressed at having to continue doing it. And I think mm. that's really important what you were just saying about um, not trying to tackle everything at once mm. and doing things in little bite-sized steps mm. and rewarding yourself after you do something and yeah. giving lots of praise and... Mm. Uh, motivation for yay you've opened three envelopes yeah, yeah. well done <laughs> yeah I think we have a tendency I think also it can be very difficult when you're particularly when you're depressed because your self-worth is already very low so you're mm. thinking like oh well I've got to do all of this stuff and then you're thinking oh well if I was normal whatever mm. that means oh then I would be able to do this why can't I do the things that normal people can do why mm. can't I just like have a shower like everybody else can mm. so you're already feeling like the lowest of the low and you're already feeling like I am worthless. So then trying to do something massive and failing as almost anybody would, um, it's going to make you feel worse. So I think being kind and doing it in steps is actually really, really important. Because like, I mean, yeah, I, I don't sit down and do all of my tax admin or in like a seven hour shift. I do it little bits as I go, yeah. you know, because there's no way I would do it otherwise. Yeah. Um, and, I think when you're unwell, you're even less likely to give yourself any credit for doing these things. Yes. Um, so I think understanding that doing stuff in steps yes. is the only way you're going to get stuff done is also really important. Yeah. I think getting, for me, um, in feeling better, like celebrating the small wins mm. has been really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, but they're also, you know, just you can't judge the difficulty of a task by the task itself. It's not, it's... It's it's not a relative thing. Mm. It's an absolute. So, like, you know, something that to one person looks like easy peasy, that can be very difficult. And 
it's not that you're congratulating yourself on the simple act of opening three envelopes. You're congratulating yourself on the very difficult act of the energy that goes into making yourself do the thing that you really don't want to do. Yeah, and confronting, you know, if, yeah, if you're feeling happy, yeah, opening yeah. an envelope is doesn't actually have that much, yeah. like, meaning. Mm. You're just sorting. Mm-hmm. But if you're really unwell, then opening the envelopes represents tackling a much bigger problem. Mm. So, of course, it feels like a lot heavier because... It represents so much more than mm. when you're healthy and like mm. you're just opening an envelope without mm. thought and stuff yes. hasn't piled up. So uh, yeah, there's yeah, also yeah. I was just thinking that your own good parent would also let you ask for help. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and that's it's something I really struggle with um, because that is you know if I'm asking for help, I've automatically failed, right? Absolutely. Um, but. Of course, like if there's your your good parent character is sitting around your flat when you're in trouble and you go, oh, can you just can you just do this thing with me while I, and they'd be like, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so why should you not, you know, let yourself ask for help? And you, you know, we're talking just earlier on about how you've sort of um, recruited your yeah. family and your partner in in kind of helping you do the things that keep you in the right place and that's you know probably was quite a hard thing to do. The yeah, first time it can you be really it. really hard. Yeah. But I really think that like. Yeah, I think community is really, really, really important when we talk about Mm. this stuff. Um, And again, this is one area where money is particularly thorny because people don't like to talk about money with their friends. Mm. People don't like to talk about money with Mm. friends or sometimes even partners. Mm -hmm. People really don't like to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, obviously disclose what you feel comfortable disclosing, but sharing a burden, Mm. whether that's to do with, like, your self-care or... Um, paying your bills or whatever it is mm. will actually help. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah, that, that asking for help is is good. Yeah. Mm. Um, Especially yeah. because people around you, when they can see that you know you are distressed, you are suffering, people kind of want to do something but don't know what to do. They kind of want a job. Yes. And if you can give them a job to do, yeah, <laughs> like asking for help. But the other side of that is like somebody wants to be given a job to do that that is helpful to yeah, you. Yeah, and practical as well. And yeah. um, so yeah, often people ask me like, what can I do? Mm. And obviously there's stuff like listening and just mm. being there, which is more vague. But there are so many practical things people can do as well. Um, mm. And I think of some of the times that friends have like really, really helped me, a lot of it has been just sort of nebulous emotional support, and that's really important. Mm. But stuff like people have like ordered me food mm. to come to my house or, mm. you know, I've, I've friends of mine, have, we've sort of exchanged like hampers mm. like, of like stuff. Mm-hmm. that you need mm. practical stuff it's like you know when someone has a baby yeah. you go around with loads of food that they can put in the freezer and yeah. put but, in the oven or the mm. microwave I think we should be doing that when people have mental health problems as well it's like <laughs> not in yes. a patronising way but you know like doing yeah. practical stuff yeah. um, saying I'll come and do your laundry even yeah. stuff like that or I'll help you with your tax spreadsheet or I'll yeah. I'll, open yeah, I'll open your mail yeah I, exactly I have a tendency to avoid like very admin-y based um emails yep. I really hate email and it really gets to me when I'm struggling and I had a friend who just sat with me while I opened emails to be honest that's like my dream that's my <laughs> ideal I love I love being I love like inbox zero so yeah you know if anyone listening needs someone to open their emails for them yeah. I'll, I'll do it for free I just were, really like opening emails <laughs> there were a couple that I was just really avoiding so it was like I opened it and he read it and then he told me what it said and it was like right I can deal with it now because yeah. I'm not so scared of it it was yeah, just yeah. like all big in my head have and... we just match made here yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'll cover something in your inbox <laughs> yeah you can tell that as a service Monetized. yeah I could yeah, yeah. <laughs> amazing Amazing. You've been listening to Squanderlust, a podcast about the emotional side of money. 
Your hosts were Martha Lawton and Alex Lemon. You can find us online at squanderlustpod.com where we'll put links to show notes, books and articles we mention and other interesting things. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or you have a story to tell about something you've heard here, get in touch through the website. If you enjoyed Squanderlust, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and rate us too. The more stars you give, the happier we get. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Squanderlust is sponsored by Wardour Studios in Fitzrovia, London, with production by David Smith, Charlie Brandon King, Tom Berry and Alicia Cunningham. Our theme music is by Wardour Studios and graphic design by Jason Reed. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.